Hello, dear friends, listeners, and now viewers. It's time for yet another episode of The Forge. Last episode, we covered only the first two verses, but as you may recall, we found there assurance for the believer. Assurance for the believer. So we want to remember this idea because it gets repeated uh, at the end of Jude and verses 24 through 25. And now we're going to focus on verse 3. And I've given this the title, The Believer in the Faith. The Believer and the Faith. And as a reminder, this same theme will be repeated again in verses 20 through 23. But I would like to suggest that what we have here in verse 3 is not only just the theme here at this point in the outline, but it's also the theme of the entire book. The theme of the entire book is the believer and the faith. And hopefully you're following along with our inversion outline that I suggested at the beginning. And those suggestions that I just made will make sense if you're following along in the inversion outline. So we're on our B theme, the believer and the faith. The believer and the faith. So let's get into it. The word of the living God beginning at Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. As we begin our discussion today, it seems that there is a letter written and a letter not written. A letter written and a letter not written. In fact, what Jude states here is that it was his intention to write his audience concerning their common interest and that which would be common to all Christians, and that would be salvation through Christ. In fact, there's a Greek word here, poiumenos, poiumenos, and this is a participle in the present tense, and there's an implication of something here which should not be overlooked as we consider this entire sentence. There's three shades of meaning I want to bring out here. And I want to be clear. You don't have to know Greek to be a Christian. And you don't have to know Greek to know how to read and study your Bible. And by no means am I some kind of a Greek scholar. I've never pretended to be that. But... All that said, it is good for us to at least have some understanding of Greek. Why? Because that is the language of the New Testament. And when we know Greek, it really helps us to, it serves to really help us keep things in context. It won't, let, it won't allow us to rip verses out of context um, and without violating the laws of grammar and you know the rules that we have even in in Greek grammar so even if you know just a tiny little bit you can understand the origin of words and you can get some meaning uh, that may not uh, come across with just a single word in English and I want to be clear I'm not attempting to correct the Bible listen your Bible in English is just fine there are uh, versions that, in my opinion, are better than others, and I um, have reasons for that. Maybe someday in the future I'll 
do a whole video on how I've landed, kind of where I've landed. Um, I would encourage you to stay away from paraphrases because they wander so far off the original meaning. I don't even know why people call it a Bible. It's a paraphrase. And I really um, don't like, um, I'm not a fan of the New International Version by any stretch. I, um, I don't like uh, dynamic equivalents. I prefer, instead of going from thought for thought, which is the uh, method that is attempted there in the translation, I really prefer to get as close to a word-for-word -word translation as we can get. And so uh, that's where I come down on these issues, and it's impossible to do that. Uh, everyone uses, no matter what translation you're using, there is a bit of what would be called a dynamic equivalence because there's just no other way to get from ancient Greek into English. Now, all of that said, I still want us to take a look at this. We're not attempting to correct your Bible. I'm not trying to write my own version or anything like that. I would argue that we don't need another English version at all of any kind. We've got plenty. That said, let's get into this word here, this a participle that I mentioned that's in the present tense. And there's an implication of something here, and there's shades of meaning. There's three points that I want to point out with just this one word. Uh, first off, this participle is temporal, meaning uh, in time, meaning uh, Jude was saying, while I was doing this. Well, what was he doing? In other words, Judah is saying, while I was writing on this subject common to all Christians, our common salvation, I started doing something else. So while I was doing it. And then the second thing I want you to note here is that at the same time he's saying, while I was doing it, he's saying, although I was doing it. And then there's this third shade of meaning that we should notice. And that is that Jude is using this transition to set us up for a new idea. Now, if I could put it all together, it might sound something like this. During the same time that I was really putting forth some serious effort on writing on the subject of salvation, I got another idea for subject matter of this letter. Although I was already writing... I have decided to introduce a new subject entirely. So we're going to learn in the next verse that Jude was compelled to write them on a different subject completely, but there's this idea among some scholars that apparently news had reached Jude that there was a danger that was facing the church. Well, what danger would that be? And we're going to get more into that in verse 4. But for now, let's just say that the church is under an, an insidious assault. Uh, Jude desires to stir up the faithful to defend their faith against these attacks that are coming against the church. And perhaps there was another letter that Jude, Jude wrote at a later time. And he may have addressed their common interest uh, of salvation, uh, the, the point that he had kind of abandoned in this letter. We really do not know. In any case, it's not the Lord's intention to include that other letter, as an, uh, to include it as inspired uh, Holy Scripture in our Bible of today. 
Jude found it necessary to write about something else. And that's the point here. And there are reasons for it. And he is using language to say, I'm setting you up for a different subject. So listen up. So I would suggest that it was the Holy Spirit who actually changed the subject. Uh, that's what I believe. I don't believe that Jude just came up with this randomly just off the top of his head, but that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things. So the idea here is that Jude is obligated by the Holy Spirit to write them on the subject. And that's what I want to stress out of all this. That's why I'm making such a big deal about it. It's necessary based on Jude's duty. And remember, we've talked about this before. He is a bond servant. Based on his duty as a bond servant, he is going to write them on this subject. And remember how we discussed what it means to be a bond servant. The Holy Spirit tells Jude now to encourage them earnestly to contend for the faith. Earnestly contend. Now, there's a couple of things to notice here. First, let's look at the Greek word epigonizomai. And this is the Greek word uh, where we get the idea to agonize, to agonize over something. It means to contend for or to fight for something. And here in the New King James Version, which is the Bible that I'm using, it's translated as earnestly contend. Friends, there are some things in this life that are not worth fighting for. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does not fall into that category. In fact, Jude is saying that it is needful or it is necessary for us to fight for the faith. And this is truly the overall theme of the entire book. The faith. So as we contemplate these things, I want you to picture an athlete who is determined to win. He finds himself in an intense struggle. He's competing with all that he has to give. And as I've just stated, the reason for this fight is given in verse 4, which we'll get into in another episode. Uh, the next episode, as a matter of fact. But I will tell you this much. Men have crept into the fellowship of believers, and these men have been teaching that God's grace means that we can live in sensuality or licentiousness, or as it says here in the New King James, it says lewdness. And friends, this is a perversion of the idea of God's grace. This is not what God's grace means. But for now... I would ask you to recall that I've mentioned in both the previous episodes of Jude all about what I've said about grace, what I've said about mercy. From the very beginning, I spoke to you about what it means to be called by God. And I wanted to do uh, as Jude did in those first two verses. I wanted to remind you of the love of God which God has chosen to pour out upon his people. And however, as I say that, with this whole idea of contending comes this notion that we cannot just sit back and relax in the love of God. I've got the love of God, so I don't have to do anything. No, friends, we've got to be ready to defend the faith. We've got to be contenders. Jude not only wrote this to the church of old, but he writes it to the church of today. 
So here in verse 3, Jude speaks of the faith. Now, what Jude is not referring to here is the personal expression of saving faith by the individual. Like if I were to say, I have faith. I have faith that I am saved. What's in view here in this, uh, in the content of this message taught by the apostles and held in common by all Christians. So what am I talking about? This message that has been taught by the apostles and that is held in common by all Christians. What, what kind of a faith is this? Well, we want to use scripture to define scripture. And so when we have a question like, what is meant if it's not the personal expression of faith, then what is meant by this word faith? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul states, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, <clears throat> he was seen by me also, as by one born out of time. Now this is Paul writing, and he's saying that I also saw Jesus as well. And um, when it says here that uh, they are, some of the witnesses are still present to the, this day, but some have fallen asleep, Paul is writing about those who would still be alive at the time of his writing, who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And when he says they've fallen asleep, obviously this is a term of some of those witnesses who have already physically passed away from this life and are now in eternity. And so, but what Paul is describing here is the, really the essential tenets of the gospel message. And if you may remember from either the first episode or the second episode here in Jude, I don't remember which one, but I uh, explained the gospel of Jesus Christ in very similar terms to what Paul laid out here. Very similar. It's almost like I had that planned. So, when we speak of the universal faith held by all Christians, this definition is what we need to keep in mind. Now, believe me, as many of you know, we've got a lot of what I, I would call, uh, and I've heard other people use this term, I did not originate this term, uh, but we might call them in-house debates over some points of doctrine. And I would even go so far as to say that some of these points of doctrine mean that we will not have fellowship this side of heaven. And it seems pretty obvious to me that that's the case. This is why there are so many uh, different Christian denominations. And I've heard our fellowship of Christians put this way. We're all family, but we don't all live in the same house. <laughs> so... Uh, to be a Christian and to be a part of that universal fellowship of believers does not mean that we agree on every single little thing that there is concerning the practice of our faith. But it does mean that we hold to what Paul said here in 1 Corinthians 
15. These things are essential. If you're going to be a Christian, these are the things that you absolutely must believe. The things I just read. And as I often do, I like to cite more than just one passage of scripture because I want you to see that there are interconnected themes here and that each verse of scripture relies on something else. And that's not a bad thing. That is a good thing that shows internal proof of the scripture. So imagine all these different authors writing at different times, yet somehow miraculously carrying the same theme. As I have said before, uh, uh, precept upon precept, scripture upon scripture, one building block upon the other. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, take verses 19 through 22, we find these words concerning God's church. He says, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And in Second John, Second John, verses 9 through 10, we find these words to help us further define what it means to be a Christian. He says this, and you need to listen, listen to the words of the living God. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him. So much I could say about that. People will say things like, I believe in God. I just don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe Jesus was the son of God. He was a good man. He was a prophet. He was this. He was that. Friends. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in God. And that's essential to being a Christian. So you say you believe in a God, but you don't believe in Jesus. I don't know what kind of God you believe in. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. And that's what makes Christianity different than everything else. All the other worldly systems that are out there. And again, so much I could say about this one verse, and I don't want to uh, get too far sidetracked, but meditate on that, dear, dear friends. If someone teaches a doctrine other than the doctrine of Christ, they are not of Christ. It's just that simple. Well, what is the doctrine of Christ? Again, I would refer you to all the scriptures that we just went through, those other two passages. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I want us to have a very clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian because if you don't have that understanding, you can't move forward here in the book of Jude. Being a Christian and Christianity on the whole, this is a noble cause for which to fight. And it's not just a half-hearted fight, it's an agonizing effort. Remember, think of that athlete. Think of that athlete running that marathon or a triathlon and they are at the finish line and they are exhausted because they have physically 
given all that they can give. They cannot give anymore. Well, that's the kind of an effort that we are involved in here. This is what it means to be part of the Lord's church. This idea becomes so important as we move through the book of Jude, looking at context. So you see there's a critical truth to our faith, the central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the anointed one, the eternal son of the living God who took on human flesh to accomplish salvation. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. You see, dear friends, we can disagree about water baptism. We can disagree about eschatology, uh, the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, local church government and organization, and probably more things than I can even list. We can disagree about those things. But none of this means we are not Christians. There's one thing on which we all must agree as Christians, and that is what we think of Jesus Christ. Again, we may not live in the same house, but we're still family. <laughs> so it is the rejection of the truth of the gospel, the rejection of all hope of reconciliation with God through Christ that makes someone not a part of the universal family of faith. So when Jude uses the word faith here, this is what he has in view. So notice too that he states that this faith faith was once for all delivered to the saints. To the saints. So there's a simplicity to our faith, and yet there is a fullness as well. As you've heard me say on the podcast, God created everything. If uh, you have any questions about where I stand on that, I would suggest at this time, because I don't have it on YouTube, go out to my podcast listen to our series on the entire book of Genesis. We went through the entire book of Genesis verse by verse. But the point is, is that God created everything. And you'll recall from that study that mankind fell. And this is why we have been separated from God. And this is why we are worthy of his righteous judgment. We know that God promised from the third chapter in Genesis that there would be a Savior. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to be at the Father's right hand. We could add that this fullness of faith comes from the scriptures themselves. Here we find that the line of Jesus as David's son, he is God's king the savior of his people. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And we speak of a saving faith, repentance from sin, the Holy Spirit who dwells within. We speak of water baptism. We speak of the church. So when we talk about the faith, and we talk about the fullness in Christ, these are the things that we're talking about. I want to encourage you to think of Paul's obedience of faith as we read Romans chapter 1 verse 5 where it says through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations 
for his name. Paulus also wrote to Titus, and he stated that he, this is Paul speaking, he says that he is a bondservant. There's that word again, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. You may remember from our study through James. Now I'm citing another one. We went through the book of James. And James says that faith apart from works is dead. That's James 2 verse 26. And in 1 Peter 1 7, Peter wrote, he says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there are even more scriptures which we could point to to show the fullness that's in view here when we talk about the fullness of the faith that we have in Christ. The point is, is that Jude is not talking about some vague idea. He's not talking about a mere concept of a system of beliefs or opinions. Jude mentions the word faith and he is talking about the life-changing activity of God in the heart and in the mind and the life of the believer. Our conformity to this faith has moral imperatives, moral imperatives, and a complete obedience to Jesus. This is what Jude means. Notice, too, that this faith uh, is a faith of completeness. This faith was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you know what that means? It means, dear friends, that this one thing is settled. We are not free to change this faith. This is not a faith which is evolving into something else. Concerning the completed work of Christ, there is no new revelation. Let that sink in. There is no new revelation. There's no extra biblical prophecy, prediction, word of knowledge, whatever kind of thing that you want to call it. When it comes to the saving power of Christ, there's no new revelation. So people need to hear this today. There's nothing new to be added. And I once heard someone say when they were talking about the latest so-called um, <laughs> evangelical trends, and I've, yeah, I've mentioned that I listened to um, Dr. James White. I listened to um, Pastor Jeff Durbin. Um, there are others that I listen to, but one of the things that I've heard Pastor Jeff say is uh, he calls it evangelism. It's not evangelicalism, it's evangelism. And this is what I once heard someone say concerning evangelism. They said, if it's new, it's probably not of God. And if it is of God, it is probably not new. Now, in context, this person was talking about what religious organizations often attempt to do in an effort to hype up whatever 
uh, program they're promoting or project, or they want to even try to hype up the gospel message. But God certainly does do a new work when he brings a dead man to life. There's no question about that. But my point is, is that when it comes to the gospel, the thing for which we are to contend, it has been settled. It has been settled. If something new comes along, it's probably not of God. And I came from a tradition where it seemed like every couple of weeks or months or every now and then, whenever it was fashionable, God was going to do a great new work. Friends, <laughs> the gospel is settled. Your Bible is settled. <laughs> Does he do a new work? Absolutely. When he brings someone to salvation, he brings a dead man to life. That's done because something new is happening. But as far as a new revelation or some new hype or whatever, it's not of God. I'll take anybody on. It is not of God. There are so many works of the flesh that we have already seen come crumbling down. And I think we're going to continue to see it. Things being done in the name of the Lord. And it's not of God. It never was of God. He never approved it. It was not a move of the Holy Spirit. It was hype. It was an emotional state that people got worked up into. It was people with good intentions, but very misdirected, very misguided due to false teaching and not paying attention to what Jude wrote for us here. So the final point that I want to make here is that the Christian faith and all that it brings is worthy of our maximum effort. Do not confuse what I'm saying here. We're not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about being conformed to the image of Christ. Those moral imperatives that I was talking about. Being conformed to the image of Christ after you are already saved. I'm talking about being ready to give a reasoned defense for this powerful and rich faith. I'm saying there's no place for complacency in this Christian faith. So dear friends, get after it. Get on your feet. Contend for the faith. Agonize if it is what the Lord requires of you. Fight. Fight for it. Study. Read your Bible. Pray. Get in a fellowship, preferably one of the Reformed tradition that's going to teach you correctly about the doctrines of grace and salvation and God's love for his people, the price that he paid for his church. But get into it and make a stand. So in the next episode, we will more fully get into the reasons for this urgency. And until then, friends, earnestly contend for this awesome faith in Jesus name. Amen.